out chapter 26, and you may look and go, hold on, you're not covering all the paragraphs this morning, and you're right, but we are, we are rounding it out, and uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, Pastor Andrew is going to um, set the stage for our launch into the book of Acts, the latter part, so uh, starting in chapter 13 through the end of the book, 28. And so that's what our fall is going to look like in adult Sunday school. I think there was some confusion when I tried to, attempted to do this same kind of lay of the land a couple of weeks ago. So in Sunday school, we're going to be in the book of Acts. In corporate worship, we're starting next Lord's Day, the book of Hebrews. Okay, so we're going to be in Acts, Sunday school, Hebrews, in our corporate gathering. Okay, so that's... That's where we're headed, and um, if you've got the handout, you'll see we're looking specifically at the church's appointed government. How did Christ ordain his church to be, to be set up, to run, to function? Okay, so we're going to look at that. Before we do, uh, I want to begin with a word of prayer. So let's go to the Lord. Father, we are so, so thankful to be able to gather this Lord's Day as your people. Father, you are so good, and you do good, and you are worthy of our praise. Father, this morning I pray that you would remind us again anew of your mercies, your steadfast love, your faithfulness that endures forever. Father, we are so thankful that you first loved us and sent your Son to rescue sinners like us. Father, we pray that this would be a, a day of rejoicing as we remember the great hope we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as your people gather, we pray that uh, our hearts would be enlarged this morning to run hard after you, to seek to honor and glorify you in our thoughts, words, and deeds. And Father, we are mindful of all the other Sunday school classes happening right now and the Foundations class, people who are interested in learning more about membership at Grace Covenant Church. Father, we are thankful for how you are gathering together a people to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in this place. And we thank you in particular for the teachers who take so much time to prepare and to teach and equip this next generation of children and of believers. Father, we are thankful and pray your blessing upon this Sunday school hour. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> okay. Paragraph 8 and paragraph 9. Now, I have a mic here. Instead of having a runner, I'm just going to ask if I could get a volunteer to read paragraph 8. So this is mic number 4 for the, the sound crew. A volunteer to read paragraph 8. I'm going to have Brandon do the first one, and then Dennis had his hand raised for paragraph 9. So we're going to read those back to back. Is this on? There now we go. It is. Paragraph 8. A particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members, and the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church so-called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, 
to be continued to the end of the world are bishops or elders and deacons. Thank you, Brandon. Paragraph 9. The way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit unto the office of bishop or elder in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church if there be any before constituted therein and of a deacon that he be chosen by the like suffrage and set apart by prayer and the like imposition of hands. All right. So we're going to attempt to work through these two paragraphs. Thank you, sir. And um, I really am thankful to have this opportunity because of the importance of church governance. Um, I was reminded of this even last night, being able to spend some time with a family who lives in a place where within this heavily populated region, there are few healthy local churches. And one of the struggles that was highlighted was that there are some churches who have sound doctrine. So they, they are, they're locked in with, with good theology so you could say their doctrine of salvation, their soteriology is, is spot on. But where there seems to be an issue, a concern, lack of health is in their ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. And this family is testifying to the, the concern and the heartache when that's missing, how a church that may have some things right really are not providing what believers need in particular places like local church settings all around the world. And um, when it is functioning properly, there is great health and benefit and good for the saints who are gathering in those local expressions of the bride. And so when you see church governance being appointed and played out the way that Christ has ordained it, you start to, you start to get a glimpse into what it's supposed to be. And, and when it's functioning well, um, it is good. And, and, the, and the body is, is, is benefiting from that and, and flourishes under that, that governance. And so when we look at these two paragraphs... Want to begin? You've got you've got two blanks there. The biblical model of church governance, which is laid out in these paragraphs, would be officers and members. Officers and members. And we're going to look closely at the two offices. There are two identified in the New Testament: the office of elder and the office of deacon. Before we get there, though, just to, to put us in the, the context in which this, this um, confession was, was constructed or framed, the framers were really interacting with three main kind of schools of thought when it comes to church governance. The first would be the Episcopal model, 
This would be like the Church of England. And the way in which that was structured, it would be ruled by bishops appointed over geographical areas. Then under them, they would have priests or vicars that would be leading those local congregations. Another model would be a Presbyterian model. And they would agree, the framers of the 1689, with... Um, the Presbyterians on some points, like a local congregation should be governed by a plurality of elders, but from there, particularly at this time, Presbyterians would begin to get very organized and there would be a hierarchy in which higher assemblies of, of uh, leadership would, would be able to speak into or exercise authority over local congregations. So there weren't like a independent, local, autonomous congregations. And another point, at, in this particular time in history, the Presbyterians in that day sought to govern in cooperation with the state. So the minister and the magistrate would, would work and lead in, in cooperation. And then lastly, there was the congregational model. And I think John Cotton helps us see this. He's kind of known as the father of the New England congregationalism. So this is going back into that same time period. He would preach about church government and lay minister relations. He preached the principle of free consent, which stated that no formal church decisions were to be made without the consent of the laity or the church members. So this is probably a reflection of what we're most familiar with, most of us growing up in churches, where you may have a pastor solo, then you may have like a, a board of deacons, but where the buck stops, it's really the congregation that, that makes the decisions that lead ultimately the direction in which the church goes. So that's kind of the context, the, the three main schools of thought when when the framers, these Reformed Baptist men, were, were putting together and constructing uh, chapter 26 of the Confession. And so what we'll see and what we agree with here at Grace Covenant Church is a, a model that is elder-led. And so this is pulled actually right from our website. This concept refers to our own form of governance. We believe that the most clear biblical pattern is for churches to be governed by elders who lead jointly by what we re refer to as a council of elders. And I think this is important to just highlight uh, the plurality, the, m the multiple elders I is not something that, that we just thought was a good idea, but is actually rooted in Scripture. And so you see this, for example, in Titus 1.5. The New Testament always speaks of elders in the plural when uh, addressing a single location. And so we're reminded of the importance of not just one man being uh, over a particular congregation. Now, there, there may be one primary teacher or preacher, but this plural function of, of leadership is, is very helpful and uh, actually ordained by God. So the New Testament always speaks of elders in the plural. In other words, authority never rests in just one person alone. Okay, so just for a moment, thinking about um, eldership 
In the New Testament, the term elder or presbyter, presbyteros, or you may have seen the words overseer, bishop, episkopos, and pastor, shepherd, poimen, are all used actually interchangeably throughout the New Testament. And you'll see, you may be familiar with some denominations who really latch onto one of those terms and create an office based off of that term that they find. And when you read the full breadth of the New Testament, you actually see these words being used interchangeably to mean the same thing, referring to the office of under-shepherd or elder in a local church. So you've got several different passages there, Acts 20, 28, Titus 1, 5 through 7, and 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2, where you'll see these words used interchangeably. The term elder refers to, you've got a blank there, the office, while the term overseer and pastor refer to the tasks and functions, that second blank, of that office. Did y'all get those? So the term elder refers to the office, while the terms overseer and pastor refers to the tasks and functions of that office. It's increasingly popular in our day for tradition and culture to influence the church's perspective on pastoral care. But scripture alone must shape our perspective on what church governance looks like. So, let's think for a moment what a biblical elder is not. While I would love to camp out and unpack this, I think it's good to just list it, list it off. A biblical elder is not simply an older male. Many kind of refer to elder in the church and think they must be a, an older man in order to, to qualify. A biblical elder is not simply a successful businessman. A biblical elder is not simply an involved community member. A biblical elder is not simply a good old boy. A biblical elder is not a female. 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15 explicitly helps us understand that this ordained by God is for a man to fulfill this office. And if you're, if you're kind of hung up by that, I want to just emphasize the primar primary function of teaching. That is what distinguishes the office of elder from everything else. It's that ability to, to teach, instruct the flock, and God has ordained for men to do that, to hold that, that office. And then a biblical elder is not a politician. Now, what a biblical elder is. A biblical elder is a man who can teach and manage his own household. This is important because we see that in the home, really that is the training ground for leadership in the church. If, if a man cannot manage his own household, he is not fit then to oversee and manage the people who are gathered in a local uh, church. A biblical elder is a man of exemplary, Christ-like character. So it is really interesting being able to teach and being able to manage your household are the qualifications that are, that are at the forefront of, of activity that must be present, that responsibility of a man. And then everything after, when you read through 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, all has to do with the character of the man. 
And so we see, and we could spend a lot of time looking, but I, I just want to encourage you to go in your own study and time and look at 1 Timothy 3 and look at Titus 1 and see the Christ-like character that is required for a man to be qualified for the office of elder. A biblical elder is a man who is sound in the central Bible doctrines. This is a man who, who holds fast to orthodoxy and who can help, help other people understand the truths that we find in God's word. But I think this is also important for a local congregation. A biblical elder is a man who shares the church's particular doctrinal distinctives. So if you're familiar with membership here at Grace Covenant Church, this is an important distinction. To be a covenant member, you do not have to agree with everything down to the the, the, the smallest dot or tittle that we, that we teach here as elders. So when you think about the doctrines of grace, there may be some who, who struggle with some of uh, the, the tenets of Reformed theology, maybe still wading through those waters. If you are gladly submitting to us who are teaching that and not going to teach contrary, you're welcome to join us and to grow in your sanctification and walk with the Lord as we lead the flock. The difference when holding an office of elder specifically and even deacon is you have to actually affirm, agree with wholeheartedly the distinctives that we hold here. And there's good reason for that when you talk, when you think about the unity of the church and what it means for us to all be on the same page moving forward as we're being instructed by our convictions from scripture. And then a biblical elder is a man who loves the congregation. This is also hugely important. It is not just a man who knows a lot about the Bible. If you do not love the flock, you're actually not qualified to be an elder in our church or in a, in a local church. We want to be able to recognize his love for other members of the church by the fact that he is already involved in elder-type work even before he's given the title. And then lastly, a biblical elder is a man who equips the saints for the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4.12. So now just let's think for a moment about the calling and function, the duty, the responsibilities of an elder. This comes from our foundations class, and I think it's really helpful. Um, when thinking about the qualifications and who, who should be called to be uh, an elder. Firstly, we're, we're looking at some, some insight from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones identifies three features of the call to pastoral ministry, the call to being an overseer, an under-shepherd. So you've got three spots there. The first is the need isn't the call. There are times in a church's life where Maybe there's just been a big influx of people, big growth in children's ministry, whatever the case may be, and it seems like, man, we, we need more people in the trenches to oversee and to feed the flock and care for the flock. So we're seeing this need arise, so we need to start plugging guys in. And what we're reminded of clearly is that the need isn't the call. Secondly, the church doesn't issue the call. The church doesn't 
issue the call. And then the third blank you, you have there, the church's function is to confirm the validity of the call. So what we're trying to put the emphasis here is on God's work in a man's life versus what we think should be right for our particular congregation at a particular time. So the church's function is to confirm the, the validity of the call. So there's a little equation there at the bottom. Conversion, that, that has to have taken place in a believer's life for him to be even acknowledged or recognized as a candidate. Conversion, character, conduct, capabilities, plus confirmation equals calling. So the need isn't the call. The church doesn't issue the call. The church's function is to confirm the, the validity of the call. Now, in paragraph 8, we see this verbiage, they are to be chosen and set apart by the church, called and gathered in this way. And what we believe this to be conveying is that there needs to be consent of the congregation, affirmation of the congregation. And so I wanted to spend just a moment of time showing those who are present today how that would play out in our local church. Another word that's used that we don't use very often is suffrage. And really the definition from that is, is actually a voice given in deciding the choice of a man for an office or trust. So the congregation is involved in the process. And for those who have maybe walked alongside us, been covenant members here for a while, you may go, well, I don't see us at members meetings voting for a lot of things, these decisions that are made. And what I want to lay out before you is that while there may not be that formal vote that you historically may have experienced in another congregation, we do, as elders, take in the the input from the congregation and make sure that there is that consent and affirmation, confirmation of whoever may step into the role of office of elder. So I wanted to spend a few min minutes walking through this kind of flow of what that looks like here, how that plays out what we read in the confession in paragraphs 8 and 9. So first, I don't know if you have this on your handout, a potential elder must have proven himself as a man of elder character and ability within the context of Grace Covenant Church for no less than a period of one year. We want to walk alongside men for a period of time where not only us as elders, but the body is able to watch them in different settings as they lead their families, as they have opportunities to serve, there is that period of time of just walking alongside a man to see if he is of uh, a, a possible candidate, uh, ex ex exuding the, the qualifications of an elder. The following steps will be the process by which an individual will be screened and evaluated in, in terms of dis discerning God's hand upon that person's life and qualifying him for a leadership position within Grace Covenant Church. So the first blank you have there, number one, is initiation. Initiation. So the individual responds to God's working in his life by expressing a desire to serve 
in a leadership capacity. So again, I want to direct you to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. One of the things that comes to light in that as we look at qualifications of an elder is it's a man who aspires to the office. Now, that can be confusing to some because you interact with some men who, who come into a local church and they immediately want to have a leadership role. And we would want to take time to assess whether or not that aspiration is rooted in, in the right motives, right? And so that walking alongside them helps kind of bring that uh, to fruition or, or to truly assess whether or not that is the aspiring to the office that we see in Scripture. So first there's that initiation. Uh, but then you run into other guys who are like, I just don't, even though we see, the body sees the, the qualifications, they, they're like, I, I don't feel worthy to that. And I think that's a great starting point. There's humility there. And that's part of discipleship that humbly seeing that the Lord has maybe done a work in this man's life and by walking alongside them and giving them opportunities to exercise God's gifting in their lives, a lot of times that I'm not sure that, I mean, this is a weighty call. I'm not sure if I can even, if I'm worthy enough uh, that's typically uh, the posture that we want to see in a man's life. And then the Lord, you know, can do that work in clarifying that we're all unworthy for this weighty task, and yet he still uses weak vessels like us to accomplish his purposes in a local church. So first, initiation. Number two, cons uh, uh, I think I had the blank there. Oh, yeah, consolation. Sorry. That's not right. Consultation. Consultation. I'm so sorry. Consultation. All right. Number two. The council of elders and the individual meet together to discuss the biblical qualifications for service. Agreement with the doctrine and constitution of Grace Covenant Church. Expectations of the ministry and or other areas that may be deemed pertinent and beneficial by either the elders or the individual. So this is that, that point of we're actually sitting down and more formalizing, there's a desire here, we've identified this, and we want to begin a process with you as a possible candidate. Number three, confirmation. The, el the, the council of elders must unanimously agree that the individual has potential for leadership and thereby assume responsibility to work with the individual towards that end. Confirmation. Number four, demonstration. Demonstration. The elders will inform the congregation that the man is under consideration for the leadership position and will assign specific responsibilities of ministry within the church for a period of three months in order for the entire ch church body to examine the individual's spirit and effectiveness in the service. And so this is where it really is formalized. That's communicated to the body. Not only are there responsibilities given to exercise and teaching, leading possibly in like a small group setting, other ways in which they have uh, responsibilities, but then at the same time, there is homework, study for that individual to work through, complete assignments, submit those to the elders. So while we're watching the practical play out, we're also making sure theologically and kind of case studies that that man is, is, 
is on the same page and, and, and is ready. And then number five, presentation. If the individual's life and service is deemed to be appropriate by the council of elders, the person will be presented to the entire church for evaluation, examination, and affirmation as one whom God has qualified for leadership. The entire congregation will be given a 30-day period in which to personally express any concerns or needed input into the council of elders. And so this 30-day um, evaluation really is that opportunity, what we see in the 1689, where the members of the church are vitally involved in, in bringing concerns or input to the elders. And this is that affirmation process. If, if there are concerns from the body, that allows the elders to then walk that out with the individual during that season of time, the 30 days. And, and so we see that as a very important step in the process. And then lastly, so that was presentation. Number six, if all things come together according to the Lord's will, affirmation. After the council of elders have acted upon the input of the congregation, if necessary, and if the elders are in unanimous agreement that the individual has indeed been qualified by an act of the grace of God for leadership within the church, then the elders will affirm what God has already done in the man's life by setting him apart for the leadership position. And so with a clear conscience, the council of elders agree that this man meets the biblical qualifications and affirms his calling to the office of elder. The confession also makes mention of laying on of hands which would represent being set apart. And so th that is important as well. In 1 Timothy 5.22, do not be hasty, Paul says, in the laying on of hands. Really, this is where we get ordination from, this setting apart. Many refer to this process as being ordained, which means being appointed, invested with ministerial or pastoral functions. And so this laying on the hands, this formal corporate understanding that this is what is happening, the blessing upon this man by the elders and affirmation of the body, uh, we celebrate when, when new elders are affirmed in that way and, and uh, I guess, officially uh, brought in as, as an elder. Function. From the confession, we read this. For the peculiar administration of ordinances and uh, execution of power or duty, which he, this is God who entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders and deacons. So the, the confession is again laying out the two offices of elder or deacons and laying out uh, the function. So I just want y'all to hear this again. What, what are elders to be about? The fundamental responsibility of the elders is to devote themselves to prayer, ministry of prayer, and the word, ministry of the word. The elders are responsible for governing the church, teaching the word, and tending to the flock of God in the local expression in which they've been placed. I like uh, and we're thankful for the affirmation or the acknowledgement of the administration of ordinances. So if you have been with us long, when we see both baptism and the Lord's Supper, we do see this as uh, a responsibility that the ones who are shepherding the flock must oversee. 
And so the ones who officiate both baptism and the Lord's Supper here at Grace Covenant Church are going to be elders. So we don't shy away from that, but we actually see that this is part of the, the comprehensive function or duties of, of the pastors here at Grace Covenant Church, the under shepherds. And you've got a, a list of uh, passages there that you can look at. Uh, I want us to open up to Acts chapter 6 as we look at elders and then also begin to shift and look at the model servants of the church, the deacons. Acts chapter 6. So with your Bibles open, I'm going to read the first seven verses for us. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole, co- uh, the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of the spirit, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Achanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, uh, one of the, the nine marks guys, and I, I think I butcher his name every time, but Matt Sm- uh, Smethurst, Smethurst, maybe Andrew can, yeah, I know, it's bad. Uh, Anyways, he's written a really good book uh, called Deacons. It's in our bookstore. He says this, the apostles in Acts 6 recognize this fundamental truth. A church whose ministers are chained to the tyranny of the urgent, which so often shows up in tangible problems, is a church removing its heart to strengthen its arm. He goes on to say, it's a kind of slow-motion suicide, meaning when the elders who are to be about the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word are always addressing and spending their time on the tangible needs of the body, it's a slow-motion suicide, meaning the heart of the church, which is what they're called to do, proclaim, to teach, to pray, to equip the saints— if that's being put to the side because of all these other needs, then really the heart is being removed to serve the arm, which is a great transition into the need for model servants, for deacons, the the second office of the church. So what deacons must be? According to Acts 6.3, deacons must be of good repute, full of the Spirit, Full of wisdom. I want you to hear this from Alexander Strzok. The congregation chose its best to care for its least. I think that's really important because a lot of times churches have either wrongly inflated or wrongly reduced 
the office of deacon. And ways in which that's played out, I think, may be addressed by some of these uh, that I have listed below. Deacons are not the church's spiritual council, nor the executive board to whom the pastor answers. Again, thinking of other church models, structures, where there's a solo pastor, you've got a board of deacons that are actually the ones making all the executive decisions, and then the congregation votes on everything. A deacon is not a mere stepping stone towards the office of elder. Again, Matt with that name I can't pronounce, he says this, Every shepherd must first be a servant, yes, but not every servant is meant to become a formal shepherd. The diaconal service is too significant, too glorious to be a mere stepping stone towards anything else. A deacon is not merely someone who knows how to fix things. A deacon is not merely someone who is a spreadsheet whiz. A deacon is not limited to connotations of menial labor or table service, but our formal assistance to the elders. Again, Alexander Strzok has done a lot of work on this, and I think it's helpful. Alexand Alexander Strzok submits the idea that uh, the, the word group for deacon that we see in the New Testament isn't only or always related to the idea of table service. While it does mean that, he's, he's actually revealing that it's more than that. Strzok notes, in recent years, scholars have shown that there is a wider linguistic range of meaning of the word deacon, that word group that previously was acknowledged. The idea is that a sub subordinate is carrying out an assignment on a superior's behalf and having full authority to execute the superior's delegated task. And so when we hear this idea of a deacon being a formal assistant to the elders, it is hugely important for us to understand the loftiness of the office seen in the New Testament of deacon. The loftiness we see in different ways. First, the character of the individual requires it. So you see 1 Timothy 3, and you see what Paul lists out, and it, it requires that, this, that we recognize the office of deacon as, as amazing. And I've got to close this out. Sorry. Second, the fact that it facilitates the ministry of the word and prayer. Some refer to this as the deacons being shock absorbers for the elders. And then the unifying and strengthening effect that it has on the whole church. You can read the rest. I'm so sorry. The last question and answer. What is the difference between elder and deacons? Elders serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. Let us close in prayer. Father, we are thankful for these two offices and pray that we would strive here at Grace Covenant Church to be faithful to walk this out the way that you have designed it. For your glory and our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.